Well, good morning. What a wonderful time it is to be together once again and to uh, open the Word of God as the Church of God. I want to start our time by just praying this morning, asking God to attend to our time in His Word. Father, we come again before You thanking You for the privilege to be studying Your Word. Lord, You are the personification of wisdom. Wisdom comes from You. The truth that we need comes from You. You are the truth, Your Word tells us. And so we are here this morning once again to just open our hearts to You and to have You impact our lives by what Your Word tells us to change us, to motivate us to allow us to live as Christ-like people. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for giving us faith in Jesus Christ, for forgiving us of our sins, and for allowing us the, the ability by the power of your Spirit to understand the realities of what your truth says, not just the words on a page, not just the grammar, but what the implications are for our life. So we're thankful that we are here this morning, Lord, we'd ask that you would attend to our time as you have promised, giving us an understanding of these things so that we would be uh, the children of God that you have desired and that we would reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. So thank you for this time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to ask you this morning, if you would, to take your Bibles and return with me to our study of Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, and we are beginning to focus our attention once again on just the first 12 verses of Paul's words here in this epistle in chapter 14, and we are literally inching our way uh, through this passage so that we can glean and ensure that we understand fully all the Apostle Paul has here by the power of the Spirit on this crucial subject of Christian conduct. How you and I as Christians are to be living out our Christian lives. And so let's begin our time this morning by just hearing this passage read to us, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats Regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. 
And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now you remember from our last time here, last Lord's Day, that we are in this new section as we have divided it up, this entire section on the subject of Christian conduct as Paul is addressing it from his own mind. Let us not forget that in the previous chapter, chapter 13, we were being exhorted on a more general practice, more general practices within the Christian relationship. In other words, our relationship to the governing powers and how we are to respond to those whom God has placed over us and how we are to live as citizens in light of or motivated by the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate motivation for living as we live, because at any moment, in any time, Jesus Christ could return. And we certainly do not want, as Paul said, to shrink back in shame and Christ returns and we are involved in some activity that is un-Christ-like. But now here in chapter 14, we are confronted with a completely new difficulty for the body of Christ, a new difficulty that confronts the church of God at all kinds of different angles. And this new place of potential trouble for us as Christians in our behavior concerns issues, it concerns activities, it concerns decisions that are what Many have labeled gray areas, gray areas. In other words, things within the Christian life, decisions, activities, uh, things that we do for which the Bible gives no direct command to obey and no direct command of prohibition. There is no black and white to say, to use a term, no black and white answer given to Scripture about those certain kinds of things. They are gray areas, or we might even call them, as I said last Lord's Day, areas of conscience, areas of conscience. And the term gray areas, at least, can even be somewhat misleading when we think about it. 
because using it seems to imply in the mind of many and in the mind of us at times, it seems to imply that these areas, these gray areas, uh, that the information that we have in reference to these gray areas is somehow fuzzy or it's not clear. And we have to be careful not to really think in that way or not to lay them in that grouping because the Bible is clear. To say that the Bible isn't clear on any issue of life is to deny what the Bible does say, that we have everything we need for life and for godliness. So the Bible is clear how we are to deal with these areas of decision. It's very clear on how we are to live. And the emphasis that Paul is dealing with here in chapter 14 is not necessarily with the specifics of those decisions, but more so with our attitude as Christian believers, our attitude to others as we make personal decisions in these gray areas. In other words, our attitude toward others who are doing something or our attitude toward others who are not doing certain things that are not definitively prohibited in the New Testament Scriptures. And we need to not be naive here. We clearly understand that if something is explicitly prohibited in Scriptures, that there is no reason for us to even really have a discussion about it. God has spoken. That is it. There are very clear things. We understand that. We understand the clear commands of Scripture, and it's not allowed for a Christian. God says, thou shalt not murder. You're not allowed to murder. God says, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and that he is the only true God. Therefore, you're to worship him and him only. There is no other worship of any other deity. So if it's a commandment, then we must not do it if it says do not do, or we must do it depending on the command. If it's a command that we must do something. For instance, the Bible clearly says and commands in Hebrews, do not forsake the assembling of the body together. That's not a one-time thing. That's a heartfelt issue of, of forsaking the assembling of the church, forsaking it as an individual reality, as your life. The Bible says don't do that. That's a command. It's clear. We don't get to think whether we can opt out or not when it comes to being with God's people. But there are all kinds of other things throughout our Christian lives for which we need to make decisions for which there are no clear commands from the Bible, either positively or negatively. And very often, because these things are, as we've labeled them, gray area issues, then they can lead to big troubles within the church when we have the wrong attitude in dealing with them. Reminded quickly of just the church in Corinth. The Corinthian church had all kinds of issues. And it was not simply because of what they were doing, it was because of the attitude in how they were addressing one another who were involved or not involved in doing what they were doing. And this was the case in the church of Rome as well. Why? Partly because when we get saved, we come in with baggage. We come in with all kinds of things from our 
past life or the life we lived prior to our salvation. And when that happens, we bring stuff in. And that thinking that we assumed and and lived by, we bring with us. And we have to challenge that when we come into the Christian faith through the truth of the Word of God. And so this was the case in Rome. And that is why Paul is having to address this issue. That is why after writing the grand tome on salvation in chapters 1 through 11 and all the doctrine of salvation and how someone is justified before God by faith in Christ alone, now he gets into the nitty-gritty of how you live out the practical realities of your salvation in daily life. What that looks like when you live out your life. And so Paul is addressing this issue. It's an important subject for us to think through. If not for the simple fact that it can have such devastating effects on the body of Christ if we get it wrong individually. So how does this truth get explained here in these verses? Well, I'm sure you remember from last time that Paul addresses two groups of people as he walks through this. Two groups of people that are within every church. They are those, there are those who are weak in the faith, and there are those who are strong in the faith. And we remember that he is not talking about whether someone is a Christian or not when he uses those terms. No, being strong in the faith or being weak in the faith is not a phrase that determines who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. When Paul says to those who are weak in faith or weak in the faith, as we saw the grammar meant that in verse 1 last week, he's not speaking about non-Christians. He's not speaking about the strong in the faith as if they're the Christians and they're to have this kind of attitude towards the weak in the faith who aren't Christians. No, he's dealing with Christians. Both groups are actual Christians. And so Paul is talking to true Christians who either have a strong understanding of what salvation means and how it's worked out in practical living, or someone who has a weak understanding of salvation and what it means in working out in practical living. And an individual Christian might exercise at any given time a strong in the faith attitude in some areas, or they might, in their practical living, exercise a weak in the faith attitude in some things. And I say that simply to remind us of what Paul is truly addressing here in chapter 14 and 15 and part of 16. Because what Paul is talking about is the working out of the implications of our salvation and the gospel in our daily lives. The working out of the implications of what it means, what salvation means in our practical living. In other words, salvation for us in God, by God's grace through justification, isn't some fire insurance plan that we hold in our pocket and just go living any way we want. Our salvation has a meaning, and it means something, yes, for our future, because we'll be in glory with God, and no one can take that away. But more so, it means how we live, how we live here and now. 
And we've seen that all along. We, we said all along in our study from the beginning of chapter 12 when, when Paul made the transition from this doctrine to the practice of our salvation. We've said all along that our Christian lives will have an impact. In other words, how we live out our salvation, what we do in our lives, and what we think of others as they live out their Christian lives will either reflect upon or deflect from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is a very important truth that we must remember as we begin. Our actions do not, and our actions cannot determine whether we are saved or not. Let me say that again. Our actions cannot and do not determine whether we are saved or not. The determination of our salvation is an act of God, not an act of us. It is by means of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on behalf of sinners And that justification given to us by God, and then granting us the faith to exercise being a gift of God that we believe upon Jesus Christ. All of that is God's business, but our actions as Christians do reflect or deflect from the gospel of Jesus Christ to others because we are in our saved condition a walking billboard for the gospel. We are those who claim to know Jesus Christ and therefore our lives are to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything we do. And so as we begin again this morning, we have to recognize that within Christendom, within the evangelical realm of the church, there are spiritual differences between true believers. Some are strong. Some are strong in their understanding. And some are weak in their understanding. And that is where the trouble often begins to creep in. Because we forget that. We forget that as Christians. We we assume, we get in this mindset oftentimes, especially once we're saved, that everybody's on the same page, that everybody's got all the same understanding, all the same knowledge, and that we're all the same. But we forget that. And we mostly forget that about ourselves. So here in chapter 14 and verse 1, The general principle for dealing with this is given to us so that we don't, as I've titled this series of messages, so that we don't become like God in the life of others for the sake of the gospel. Paul says here in verse 1, the general principle. Now, except the one who is weak in the faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Here's the principle. We all have a duty. We all have a Christian brother, sister duty to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have a duty toward other Christians in the church. That's the principle. We all have a duty toward one another. In other words, it doesn't matter which category we may be in. And most of the time, 
We'll evaluate others from the view that we're in the strong category. That's the nature of our own sinfulness. Doesn't matter which one we are actually in, whether we're strong in the faith or whether we're weak in the faith, depending in an issue that we're dealing with. We all, all of us, every true Christian has a propensity to assume that we are strong in the faith. And I believe that is what Paul, why Paul begins and speaks the way he does here in chapter 14. Because what often happens in our own hearts when dealing with gray areas, issues in which there is no specific chapter and verse in Scripture, if someone is offended by our behavior in some area, what happens? We tend to assume that the real problem is the other person, the weak conscience person. That's the problem. And if they would just mature up, if they would just get to where I am in the strong position, then we wouldn't have this problem anymore. So Paul begins to deal with this issue. He deals with it from the standpoint of the stronger in faith view, from the stronger in faith perspective. That doesn't mean that to truly weaken the faith ought not to grow, Certainly, all of us should be growing. All of us should be binding our heart and conscience to the truth. We all need to grow. All of us should be striving to have the Word of God call the shots in every area of our lives, but also with the right attitude, with the right attitude toward others. In other words, the fact that someone else is weaker in their understanding of the implications of salvation in practical living ought to have no bearing, no bearing on whether we are concerned about them or whether we're bothered by them. In other words, because they're weak in their their exercise and the implications of salvation as it's worked out in their life, it should have no bearing on how I deal with them in the sense as whether I'm concerned about them or whether I'm bothered by them. We are all in the same family. That's what I'm trying to say. And therefore, we have to interact with each other and deal with each other's weaknesses from the right attitude or there's going to be continual trouble in the church. Reminded again, my mind continues to go back to 1 Corinthians as we were studying 1 Corinthians, right? This was one of the problems in the Corinthian church, right? They were a divided church into the weaker group and the stronger group, not by actuality, but by the individual view that they had of one another. Some who considered that they were strong in their understanding and practice of their salvation and how that worked out in life had become prideful and were only being with others who, at least from their own estimation, had a strong understanding of their Christian liberties. In other words, here's some who, who, who weren't doing what they were doing, or here's others who were doing what they were doing, and they were segregating themselves and looking at the others as if they were in a lesser place. So they didn't waste their time with the other people who didn't, at least in their estimation, didn't exercise their understanding of salvation the same way they did. In other words, the strong only wanted to be with those who were strong. 
I only want to be with people who are on my level of understanding. I only want to hang out with that group. And so Paul begins with this issue for the Roman believers. And he says, that's not how we're to be. That's not how truly strong in the faith people are to be. He says, right, except the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now, we need to deal with both sides of this principle here in verse 1. Because, as you notice, even as you read it yourself and you hear it in your own ears, you notice that part of it is positive, except the one, right? That's what it says in the New American Standard. Some of your Bibles say, receive the one, right? That's the positive side, but there's a negative side as well, and that's the second part, but not for the purpose. That's the negative. I want to look at the negative first. I want to look at the second part first. Because Paul says to the strong in the faith, of which all of us believe we are strong in various activities that we engage in, right? You watch movies, you watch movies that some other people wouldn't watch. You go to places that maybe some other people might not go or think it's questionable in their mind. Maybe you do some kind of activity. Maybe you have something you've done and somebody else thinks it's questionable. And well, how could you do that? So we all think in the various activities we're in that we're strong. And he says in verse 1, right? He says, you are to accept the one who's weak, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now, that's the negative injunction to all of us, to every Christian. doesn't matter which group you're in, in reality or in assumption. This is to all of us. Some early translations say it this way, but not for the purpose of judging his doubtful thoughts. That's what some early transcripts say and how it was translated. Maybe some of your Bibles that you're using even says it that way. What is Paul talking about? What is Paul talking about? Not for the purpose of judging his doubtful thoughts. What's, what's he talking about? Well, the New American Standard uses the word opinions or, or, as I said, doubtful thoughts. They're simply the thinking that someone has with themselves about any given question or activity. That's the idea with the word. The thinking that someone has with themselves about any given question or activity. In other words, the term is used that's used here, it's, it's a word that speaks about the process of a person's inward thinking and reasoning. How they came to a decision. How they go about thinking through and processing the information to make whatever decision they're making on, as Paul's dealing with, these gray area issues. And you say, well, that's interesting. Yeah, we all do this. We all do that within ourselves. We all reason within ourselves. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul said he was doing in Acts chapter 26 as he's before the court. He's before Festus and Agrippa, and they give him a chance to defend himself. And so Paul starts to share the story. And in part of it, in verse 9, he says, And so then I thought to myself, 
I thought to myself, this was my inward thinking. He's talking about persecuting Christians. He's talking about before he was saved and how he was going about that. And he said, I'm doing this and, and this was happening. And then I, I thought to myself, maybe I'll do that. He was processing. And so this is what we do on a very practical level. It's what we do when we are faced with any kind of decision. We begin to deliberate. We begin to talk to ourselves, to think through the issue. We discuss the issue in our minds. And what are we doing? What we're doing is we are distinguishing in our minds, in our own thought process, we are distinguishing between the rightness of something and the wrongness of whatever it is. However we come to those conclusions, we are making those distinctions in our minds. And our conscience is bearing witness and bearing weight upon the issue. In other words, whatever our conscience is bound to and however our conscience is formed is bearing weight to the decision and the thought process in order to make a distinction and distinguish between whether it's right or whether it's wrong. We are making determinations, in other words, between whether it's good whether it's better, whether it's best for us, and our consciences are bearing weight upon that decision. This is one of the reasons why often here in our church it's we talk about it, and it's so important for us to continually have our conscience informed by the truth of Scripture. Because The conscience is a bell, if you will. It it, it rings, and it rings its bell on what it has been informed with. My father used to say the years ago, the old adage about computers, garbage in, garbage out. You put garbage in a computer, you get garbage out of a computer. What you put in, you get out. Well, it's the same thing with our own conscience. You have to inform it. And what it's informed with, it rings the bell when those things are violated. When we sear our conscience with information contrary to biblical truth, when we're absorbed in contrary information from what the Scriptures teach, what happens is... It's like having your the nerves within your hand or within your foot or within something that touches things frequently. It's like having your nerves no longer tell you where danger is. It's like a nerve ending telling you that knife isn't sharp as you cut your finger. Your conscience becomes dull when you sear it. And an unrea- and it becomes unreactive to what is bad and what is unhelpful for you as a Christian. When your conscience is seared, when it's uninformed, it becomes unhelpful to you in the right direction. So it's so important to allow the truth of Scripture to inform your conscience, to inform your conscience rightly, and to listen to your conscience. Don't silence your conscience when it's bothering you. You do that, you're searing your conscience. Scriptures say to violate your conscience is sin. That's an interesting thing because we know our conscience isn't always right. But it's a good thing to to listen to your conscience when it's ringing and ensure that your conscience is informed by what is right, which is the Word of God. And so Paul says when we read here the word opinions here in verse 1, he says we need to keep in mind that 
he's talking about this process of discerning or the process of how I come to a judgment on whether I do something or whether I don't. So now think about that. Have that in your mind as we look at what Paul is saying. Because he is saying that you who are strong in the faith, because he's talking to the one, those who are strong in the faith, because they're the ones who can accept the one who's weak in the faith. This is the strong in the faith. He's saying to those who are strong in the faith, in other words, strong in your understanding of living your salvation, exercising your Christian freedoms, you have a strong understanding of that, that you accept the weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of judging their process of discernment. That's very interesting language to me, because this is where the trouble actually lies. The scenario being drawn up is this. Here's a weaker Christian. They're trying to think through some issue. They're trying to think through some gray area issue of life, some Christian liberty issue, something that there's no clear chapter, verse, and scripture in order to make the decision. They're, they're aware that there are others who participate in the activity or with the activity, and others they're aware of who do not do that. And there they are. They're at this crossroad. They're at the Y of the road. They have Christian brothers and sisters on both sides, and they're trying to come to some judgment for themselves. And in their mind, they're struggling. They're having a difficulty landing one way or another. They're anxious. They want to do the right thing. They want to make sure before God in their own heart, in their own mind, they're doing the right thing. But they have some doubts. They have some doubts. And so they're continually worried about whether they're doing the right thing or not. Should I be doing that too? Those who I look up to, they're strong in their faith. They're doing that. Should I be doing that too? Maybe I should not be doing that. Which one's right? Is it right for me to do it or wrong for me to do it? Possibly they have a hypersensitive conscience. Possibly their conscience hasn't been informed by the truth. Possibly they're in this place where they're, they're not sure. Maybe their conscience is uninformed about that specific activity. And so they're in some kind of state of anxiousness. And so Paul is saying to the stronger in the faith Christian, don't aggravate that. Don't aggravate that condition in the weaker brother. Don't be a brother or sister who deliberately aggravates that struggle. Don't do that. And listen, it's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us as Christians to aggravate the the weaknesses and the, the struggle that others have in areas in which there's no definitiveness. It's easy for the strong in the faith person in the exercise of our own Christian liberties, it's easy for us to aggravate the struggle of a weaker in the faith Christian. You say, well, how so? How so? Well, one way, one way that we aggravate that in each other is by continually raising the issue with someone else. Where we, we continually go on, we know they're struggling with something, but we continually go on seeking to have a discussion with them about it in an insensitive way. We attack them. 
You know they have a struggle with the issue. Maybe it's with the kind of movies you watch, or maybe it's with the kind of activity you're doing. And instead of being sensitive to them in that way, as a stronger Christian, you continue to encourage them to stop worrying about it. Just stop worrying about that. We as Christians have freedom to do that. Just stop worrying about it. Get over it. After all, you're free in Christ. Can't believe you are bothered by those kinds of things. Paul says here, don't do that. Don't do that. He says, if you know someone, if you know that some activity of yours is a problem for other Christians, then don't go around bringing it up to them. So that every time they see you, and every time they desire to be with you, they're going to have to be open up that struggle again. It's like ripping the, the scab off their arm. Don't do that. That aggravates their struggle. He's saying to the strong Christian, listen, you have, you have a position if you're strong in order to help them, and the help that you're going to give them is to not continue to aggravate their struggle. That's one way we do it. We aggravate it. Another way that we aggravate or continue to do that is to continually beat them with our clear opinions about it. In other words, we're clear on it. We got it clear in our minds. We have no issue with our exercise of freedom in that area. And so we continually try to ensure that they see just where they're wrong with it all in their thinking about it. But here Paul says, don't do that. Trying to do that only brings more harm than good to them. Now, I know what some of us are probably thinking because because as I'm going through this and I'm studying this and I'm understanding at least what I what I'm digging into and the passage that God is allowing us to be in, uh, things are going off in my mind. Little fires are flickering in my mind with all kinds of potential questions that I have, and I and I just want to be clear before I get a question on it that I'm not saying that these kinds of things, these kinds of gray area issues, these Christian liberty issues are things that should never be talked about between Christians. I'm not suggesting that at all. Paul's not even suggesting that. He's not saying that because some people are weak, then these issues should never be talked about among believers. No, there has to be discussions. There has to be inquiry. There has to be a process by which we come together and we think about these things. It isn't that these issues have can't be talked about because if they're not talked about, nobody's helped in them. But what Paul is teaching us here is the proper way, the proper way in which we can bring help to an issue. And so when someone is having a difficulty with our exercise of our own Christian liberties that we know aren't necessarily sinful by prohibition or commission, don't go about shaming that person. Don't go about trying to convince them of your rightness. To do that would be to judge their opinions. Now, when we think about that, there's a whole other extreme that we can tend to go with this if we're not careful. Because some of us tend to default to a position as Christians that 
says something like this, it seems best then to say nothing at all. That's, that, that's kind of a, a, in our mind sometimes, the default position. Okay, well, if it's going to create so much issue, then the best thing to do is just not say anything at all. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're just a avoid all conflict at all costs kind of person. And I don't want you to be like that. But you say things in your mind like, I, I don't want to upset anybody, so I'll just avoid the subject altogether. And again, that isn't helpful for anybody. And so we must remember, it isn't the subject, it isn't the subject necessarily, it, it, it may be, but not necessarily it's the subject that's, that's the issue, that's the problem. Sometimes, and most oftentimes, it's the way we address it that is often the problem, the way we address it. I was telling the men this morning as we were praying together, the three of us, six feet apart, of course, as we were together, that I used to have a professor in seminary when we had these discussions in our seminary class on this very subject, and he would say, listen, uh, one of the principles I use is, well, you can do that, but I'm not going to do that. In other words, I'm not condemning you for exercising that Christian liberty, but as I process it in my mind and as I go through it, I, I don't think it's best. You can do it if you want, however, I'm not going to do that. I think that's somewhat a good way to handle things. So what then is the positive side? That's the negative side, right? I'm not to judge their opinions, but what's the positive side of verse 1? Paul says, now, accept the one who is weak in the faith. So what is the strong in the faith to do with those who are weak in the faith? Paul says they, we are to accept them or to receive them. And this is a, a word that carries more the idea, not of how we are to do something, but really with, or, or really more so not with what we're to do, i.e. accept them, but really how we are to go about doing that. It's more an emphasis on the how of the acceptance and less on the what of the acceptance. And the word, in its essence, has the idea of a true welcoming spirit. In other words, in opposition to a grudging spirit. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. When you're unable to exercise a desired Christian freedom because there's a weaker brother or sister in Christ who is with you in that area, and if you did that, you might cause them to stumble, and you're thinking about that, and you're processing that. When that's the case, you're not to have the attitude in your heart that says, boy, if they weren't with me, I could exercise my freedom. That's the idea. It's the internal attitude that, their immaturity is holding me back from truly enjoying life to the fullest. And that's a problem. That's a problem. I know that I have to put up with this because I'm a Christian, but it certainly annoys me. That's a problem. That's a problem. Listen, that is a real problem, and it's not a problem of a strong in the faith Christian. It's a problem of a Christian who believes they are strong in the faith, but they actually aren't. 
Why? Because those who are strong in the faith do the opposite of what I just described. True, strong in the faith Christians give the weaker Christian a true welcoming attitude that shows that they are actually concerned about them and their conscience. Notice how it's stated here, because Paul highlights this acceptance in verse 3 by comparing it to another's acceptance. Notice what he says in verse 2. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Of course, we, we, we mentioned this last time, the two issues that Paul is dealing with specifically of Christian liberty issues is what can I eat and what days of uh, holy days do I have to celebrate? And and there was a lot of pagan baggage that came in with that, as we saw in 1 Corinthians in our study, and as we see here, some brought in all kinds of things. So Paul is dealing with that because that's at the forefront of their minds. That's not necessarily, it can be, but it's not necessarily the issues that we deal with. But that's what Paul's dealing with. And in verse 3 he says, Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Now contempt is a is an issue there on on the whole issue of passing judgment on his opinions. Let him who has the freedom to eat these things not treat with the contempt him who isn't like that, who's not where you are. And on the other side, let him who does not eat, the one who says it's wrong to do that, not judge him who does eat. Why? Because God has accepted him. Accepted him. And that's the same word. That's the same word in verse 1. So verse 1, the word accepted, is the same word used by Paul in verse 3, and it's speaking about God. Why is the one who eats not in regard or to regard with a contempt? By the way, that's a good definition, like I said, for passing judgment. Do not regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Why is that the case? And let him who does not eat judge not him who does. Why? There's the reason for both. Because God has accepted him. God has accepted him. In other words, the strong, the strong in the faith Christian is to accept the weak in the faith Christian in the same way that God has already accepted him. He is to do that in the same way that the strong person has already been accepted by God. The strong in the faith Christian is to accept the weaker in the faith Christian because God has accepted you both. In fact, it's interesting. Remember how Paul said it to the Ephesian believers about Christian behavior? Here's how Paul said it in chapter 5, Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, right, he writes all this grand doctrine in chapter 3. He gets into the practical aspects beginning in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and starts to talk about why the church is here for the equipping of the saints. And in chapter 5, he says, therefore, be imitators of God. Be just like God. Be just like God in your life. In what way? He says this, as beloved children and walk in love. 
What kind of love? The kind like Christ, like just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us together. We're all the same. We're in this together. He gave himself as an offering. Oh, that word offering. Where did I see that before in Romans? Oh, yeah, chapter 12. We're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Christ is an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. In fact, this is exactly how the Apostle Paul is going to sum up his entire argument when we get to chapter 15 and verse 7. Notice what he says. Wherefore, accept one another, how? Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Same word, acceptance. And so we must accept each other with the same welcoming spirit and love that our Lord Jesus Christ has shown to all of us who are His. We can't say to one another, well, gosh, I wish you were like me. Well, if I have an understanding of the truth, yes, in a genuine sense, I do. I want you to have that same understanding of truth. But how I go about helping you with that has everything to do with this principle. I can never say, listen, you just need to buck up and get up where I am. I can't do that. I can never say, listen, just get over your little idiosyncrasies. Get over your weaknesses. Get over those struggles that you have. That just aggravates them in you. That's not me caring for you. That's only me caring for me, caring for what I supposedly had the freedom to do. And yet I call them freedom. And yet I must be not free to them because I'm so bound by them that I can't give them up for the sake of you. But the truly strong in Christ will gladly do that. Because I want to have the same welcoming spirit of you that the Lord Jesus Christ has of me. Now, now I know in the last few minutes, I know you probably have questions about the specifics. And I purposely held off on getting specifics, listing decisions and and activities and details and things like that. I've held off specifically doing that because it really doesn't matter with the specifics. The specifics don't matter. The attitude is the same, whatever the gray area is. The attitude is the same. What is my attitude in how I deal with my weaker brother or sister? That's the issue. So so what I want to just spend a couple minutes on as we close down is just on a few things that we need to remember about this whole process and about all of us. One is this, all of the issues, all of the issues, whatever they are, different issues for you, different issues for me when we're, when we're in the gray area uh, realm. All of these are not central. None of those issues are central issues that determine whether or not you or I are Christians. They don't determine that, whether I participate or don't participate, whether I do it or not do it. None of those things are determining factors of our salvation. So we have to keep the main thing the main thing. Our salvation is determined and secured by Christ alone. And not by 
whether I practice something or do not practice a certain liberty that someone else might see as right. We are accepting, we are to be accepting of one another as Christ accepts us. Secondly, we need to all remember that all of us are still imperfect people, even on our best day. I know we don't like to think like that, but we are. Far too often we're like the man in James who looks in the mirror and turns away and forgets what he is. We are all still imperfect on our best day. We all err from time to time, all of us. And so let's not be so quick to condemn others for things that we so easily allow for ourselves. Not be so quick. And then thirdly, let's remember that we are all in this process of growth. We're all in the process of growth. And that growth will never be complete this side of glory. We're all in this sanctification climb and full sanctification, full holiness, full sinless holiness in mind and activity will not happen this side of heaven. None of us have arrived. And so if you're a strong in the faith Christian, don't carry yourself as if you've arrived, as if you no longer have to learn, no longer have to grow. None of us have a perfect understanding of our salvation and its implications for how we live every day. None of us. All of us are are growing in that. That's why God gave us the church. That's why we come together as a body. That's why we're in the Word of God together, so that we would be equipped for the what Paul said in Romans chapter or Ephesians chapter four. So we would be equipped for the building up of the body to win until we all attain to what a unity of the faith. See, we all have to remember that we're all growing, that we all need to be growing, that we all need to be learning. We all have to have our hearts and our minds and our consciences bound to the truth of the Word because that is what builds us up in this body, this body of Christ of which we are all part of as we know Christ. And until that time to which we all, all of us attain to a unity of the faith, a like-mindedness in our thinking and our striving and our living. That's what we're going for. And then lastly, just remember, remember that we're all part of the same family. We're all part of the same family. And as family members, we don't despise one another. We don't despise one another. Families aren't to do that. Families help family. We are to love one another. And our greatest concern should not be the exercise of our freedom. That's not our greatest concern. We all know we have them, but that shouldn't be our greatest concern, that I get the opportunity to exercise my Christian freedoms. No, our greatest concern should be to help one another. Even if that means... And surely, if that means, I have to forego my freedom for the consciences 
of others. That's what that means. Because I care about you. Because I love you. Because I want you to grow. And I don't want to be a hindrance to that. So if I have to give up that freedom for your sake, that's what I'll do. That's what Paul meant in Corinthians when he said, I became all things to all people. He wasn't saying, listen, I just became sinful if someone was sinful. No, he's saying, guess what? I give up my Christian freedom for the sake of your conscience. That's what he meant. So this then is the principle. This is the principle that Paul lays out here in chapter 14. And we've, we've lingered here and we've stayed here and we've camped here on just this first verse, really. Because if we get it wrong, we're going to misunderstand the rest of it. We've got to get this right. So that when we look at the rest of it, and we, we really will be able to breeze in one sense through these issues, because Paul just deals with two small issues. And so we need to get the principle right. And the principle is, look, don't act as God in the lives of others. You're not God. As my mother used to say, who died and made you God? Don't do that. And don't do it for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the gospel, because your life will either reflect or deflect from that reality. And we'll get more next time. So thank you for your attention this morning. We'll get into this even more next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for our time this morning. Chance once again to be in your word to hear the truth on such a crucial, crucial topic, Lord, such a, a crucial area in which the church is hurt at so many levels because we think wrongly about it. Lord, we know the truth. I mean, sometimes we think about it and we know it, but we just don't practice it. We just don't practice it. It's not convenient for us. Lord, help us put aside all that nonsense, all those things of our heart and life that that we really would we would we need to put aside just because our other brothers and sisters in Christ need to see us love them. So Lord, thank you for these words. Challenge us with them. Bring us back even to our Zoom time tonight as we are together. Think through whatever it is that's on our heart, that you might be glorified, that our heart and lives would be enriched by these things. And we'll praise you for it all. Because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.